Welcome to another edition of Reshaping America. This is your host, Kurt Flewelling. And before we get started, why don't we start with some scripture? Psalm 31:24 tells us, Be strong and take heart, all you who hope in the Lord. Um, excellent scripture to start the day. We will try not to uh, talk about the COVID-19 crisis over and over and over again here, but uh, it does seem to be what's on everybody's mind and we can't uh, just stick our heads in the sand. So um, without further ado, let me um, let me get to some of the uh, topics of the day. Uh, I see an article here by someone named Kaylee McGee. It says a second wave of coronavirus shouldn't stop us from reopening the country. It is likely that the coronavirus will have a resurgence several months from now, according to health officials, but that doesn't mean the country should delay the reopening process. Because of the degree of transmittability, a second wave of the virus is almost inevitable, says Dr. Anthony Fauci, one of the top officials on President Trump's coronavirus task force team, as you all know. But the outcome will be very, very different, Fauci noticed, uh, excuse me, noted because next time we will be prepared. Uh, our ability to go out and be able to test, identify, isolate, and, conta and contact trace will be uh, orders of magnitude better than what it is just a couple of months ago. The hope um, Dr. Fauci uh, expresses here is that mass testing will be available in the next few months so that we can identify asymptomatic carriers and isolate vulnerable communities. Hospitals will also be better prepared and stocked with the necessary medical supplies, which means the risk of overwhelming our healthcare system will be much less menacing than it is right now. And Dr. Fauci concludes with, it is also very likely that therapeutics for COVID-19 will have been developed by the time the virus reappears. So that is... Um, kind of scary news that a second wave of the virus is going to be um, happening, uh, according to some health officials. But the good news is, Dr. Fauci says, we can weather that storm. Um, as we all knew, a collision course has been building and will continue to build up until, um, you know, election day. It's very interesting how this is uh, running parallel to Trump versus Biden for the president of the United States. Um, so this tension, as far as opening up in America, is, as we have chronicled uh, several weeks in a row here, a tension between well-minded people that uh, care very deeply about the American uh, person, worker, uh, healthcare provider, all, all sorts of folks. And um, those people that care may very well be on the left and very well be on the right. However, the tension um, is coming to the fore with, as we have chronicled on several occasions here, uh, leftists, dictators, tyrants, uh, people who do not love liberty or freedom. And they are very, very fast approaching and they, they've already approached um, clashing with individuals that need to reopen this economy for a whole host of very good reasons. Um, brings me to my next article. Um, 
This one says Dallas Salon reopened in defiance of a countywide restriction ordering um, the salon to be closed. A judge ordered a Dallas salon to shut down immediately after the owner reopened in defiance of county and state restrictions. Shelley Luther said she's planning to open again on Wednesday of this week. A defiant uh, North Dallas salon, uh, salon owner said she will ignore a court order. And she said um, she will start providing haircuts again uh, at the salon a la mode. I'm not a friend. It's been many years since I took French. <laughs> salon a la mode, despite state and local coronavirus restrictions. See, she says she has had enough and uh, is willing to go to jail over the debate if it were to ever come down to that. Now, I know today she was um, scheduled to be in court uh, at the airing of this show. And I think she, uh, her lawyers uh, were there in, in on her behalf. But um, we'll see how this one uh, shakes out. Um, Governor uh, Rick Scott is, uh, is a, a, a real good conservative uh, down there. But um, the article says all of the small business owners need to have some sort of voice and we need to stand up for what's right or we will uh, continue to get our freedom taken away, Luther said on Friday. City officials cited Luther and the county sent her a cease and desist notice for going against the county's order that prohibits her non-essential business from reopening. And and her big contention is um, pretty much summed up in the next paragraph here. Essential, non-essential, that's ridiculous. What has been deemed essential and non-essential because right now um, it's, it's very odd to her because right now the pet groomer next door has been essential this whole time. So her comments say, uh, so pets can get their hair done, but someone can't walk into my salon, salon and get their hair cut. So why is pet um, grooming essential? Fair question. Um, obviously, uh, you know, uh, the, the pets are the uh, predominant inhabitants of the pet groomer building, but uh, their owners do have to come in and presumably they're waiting for them in the waiting room or coming back in. And, um, you know, their, their, um, their grooming is, is paramount, according to the state. And um, but this poor lady can't cut hair. So. Uh, it says on Monday, Judge Eric Moy granted the city of Dallas a temporary restraining order and told the salon owner to shut down immediately. He agreed the business will pose adverse public health effects from the spread of COVID-19. Um, I said Rick Scott earlier. I'm really sorry. It's Governor Greg Abbott. Um, he announced uh, a plan to begin reopening businesses this week, but his first phase as uh, President Trump has laid out these phases, um, does not include salons. So she's had enough and she is basically taking the law into her own hands. And she says, I'm reopening, let the chips fall where they may. And and rather than comment on her right to do that or uh, what I feel about her right to do that, I, I, I think... 
I think what I'd rather do in this and some other articles where it is, it does get a little muddy, admittedly, um, is is to chronicle and and pinpoint and highlight the rhetoric that is used by Democrats, statists, leftists, uh, tyrants, dictators, whatever, which I think is is actually more chilling um, than these edicts not to open up the salon. Um, Dallas County Judge Clay Jenkins, who is a Democrat, says he understands that people are hurting, but that now is not the time to put the need for making money over the law of the governor, city, and county. I think that's a rather chilling comment. And and I think when people try to make a point or try to uh, exercise authority over small business and citizens in general, I, I think... You know, we can allow some deference during these very troubling, interesting times of the COVID-19 virus or situation. But I I think, you know, when when my antennas go up is when the rhetoric is very chilling. So so this guy is is throwing money into the mix and saying, implying in some way, shape, manner or form that um, this small business owner is in it for the money, which is fine. I mean, she's got to eat too. She has bills to pay. But I I think we are in trouble when we start to pit rich against poor, uh, young against old. And the demagoguery of, of Democrats just never ceases to amaze me. These are times where we need to think clearly. And clear thinking is out the window when people that are poor are pitted against people that are rich and and there's all sorts of other uh, categories of folks and and I think judge Clay Jenkins when he says he implies she wants to make money and she is um she's putting that over her concern for public health I think that's a bit of a, a stretch um you know and and we see this little person versus elite debate going on. And um, I, I think this is just a time for thought. And, uh, you know, we, we, we have Nancy Pelosi, multimillionaire, um, showing us her designer ice cream stash. Um, she's a Democrat. We have Republican. So this cuts both ways, guys. Um, Peter King in Long Island um, saying that there uh, is going to be blood on the hands of Representative Massey a few weeks ago, as you recall, if you listen to this show, Representative Massey, um, Representative Massey uh, insisted that representatives go back to Washington and actually uh, be present for their vote on on one of the hugest um, aid bills that the uh, country has ever seen, um, $2 trillion at that point in time. Um, he just wanted these people that make 170 grand a year and much, much, much more annually when you count all their perks to just come back and do their job. And um, for that, uh, Representative Massey was excoriated and Peter King says he's got blood on his hands. But again, Peter King is in his mansion up in Long Island and you know, presumably yeah, soft 
Republicans such as Peter King and Democrats such as Nancy Pelosi. They love the little guy. Uh, I use that term generically. But, you know, they're not risking their lives or their health. It's probably a better way to put it. Um, like the $10 an hour person at the Acme checking uh, groceries for eight hours a time or the $15 an hour FedEx driver or um, Amazon driver who's shipping packages to you and I so we can be comfortable as we are hunkered down. So I, I think it's a very interesting juxtaposition of uh, the little people, and I hate that term, but I'm just using it because other people do, and elites, and it, it's just, it's all coming to a head. And this shop owner down in Dallas says, um, I'm not waiting for... Um, Governor Abbott to tell me when I can return, I'm returning. And we'll see, you know, we'll see how that shakes out. Um, I found a great article and, um, you know, I, I, I try to highlight these things and just, you know, read a couple paragraphs and then comment on them. But this article was so good that I think I am going to um, almost read it in its entirety because it is so chocked full of facts, insights, things that we need to hear during these crazy times. Uh, I, so I'm going to read it. It, it. This was in the Washington Examiner, um, April 30th. And the article says, this is no time to bail out already failing union pension funds. And this is not just a, uh, a bashing of unions. My, my dad, God rest his soul, was a, was a union thug. And um, man, if he, well, he did kind of see what I turned into. And, um, you know, he, he would be rolling over in his grave. But um, this, this is not a union bashing article. It, it really does very insightfully go down a list of many of the things that we've chronicled on this show for weeks as far as the, um, the, uh, the old Rahm Emanuel, let's not let a good crisis go to waste, and the, the literal palms on both sides of, of individuals and, and states and municipalities' hands trying to get their greedy little paws on all this COVID-19 cash that is flying out of Washington um, fast. So the article says, <clears throat> excuse me, amid the endless wearying news cycles about the coronavirus, one fact of life has been strikingly consistent with ordinary times. Every imaginable group with a longstanding financial or ideological interest wants to use the pandemic as an excuse to highlight or advance that interest. That's really all you need to know about the politics of what's going on in our country right now. And the two things that are, are uh, foremost there is money and power, and not necessarily in that order, but um, people are uh, enriching themselves, enriching their parties, enriching their states with COVID-19 money. And also, they are building a uh, um, empires or, or little power entities, if you will, 
And they will come out of this enriched, not just financially, but enriched as far as um, garnering more power, more respect, positioning themselves for uh, you know, political um, aspirations of one order or another. And it's all on the backs of the taxpayers, basically, that really Republican or Democrat, people are voting for and signing off with very, very little debate on these enormous bailouts um, that are flying out the door in Washington that uh, that's your money, that's my money. And, and I think if we interviewed anybody in our Reshaping America listening audience, and they would certainly want um, aid of one form or another to go to stop this virus, help people impacted by this virus, et cetera, et cetera. But as we have chronicled on numerous occasions, and the article goes on to do this, um, there is a, a just a, a high percentage of money that are going to special interest that have nothing to do with COVID-19 or the effects of COVID-19. So the article goes on to say special interests have been pushing arguments supporting or opposing mergers, praising or vilifying pharmacy benefit managers, supporting price supports for ethanol or oil, advocating for complicated, obscure positions on patent law. Liberal groups laughably have been arguing for pausing confirmation of President Trump's judicial nominees until, quote unquote, the shock of the pandemic has been dis diminished. Everybody is trying to use the coronavirus as an excuse for whatever special interest provision they always wanted previously. So they are poised and they are ready to exploit a crisis. And this is what we see going on before our eyes. And if the virus itself was not horrible enough, tensions are high, people's thought processes are out the window, and nobody's paying attention. Well, I should say not enough people are paying attention to the abject pork that is being generated and disseminated because of this virus. Article goes on to say the coronavirus is the new excuse for bailing out the post office, as Democrats were trying to do long before the virus struck. It has also become the latest excuse for the bailout of Illinois, the deadbeat state, as the article calls it, which has been seeking out bailouts for the better part of a decade. We chronicled that on the show last week. And um, if, you know, um, again, full disclosure, we have new listeners all the time. I am not a Republican. I am not a Democrat. I am a Christian conservative. And, um, uh, and you know, as the show unfurls, we'll bash enough Republicans if you, if you wait and listen long enough. But almost to a state or a municipality, like that story about the salon owner, Democrats are behind these uh, power grabs and these... Uh, these money grabs and states like California, Illinois, New York, who have been mismanaged for several decades are salivating at the prospect of getting COVID-19 money and using it to balance their books. That is absolutely insane. Um, but, and, and, and we'll, we'll hit it a little bit later. Mitch McConnell, no paragon of conservatism, um, 
has really towed the line to the to the point or to the point of of getting in Trump's face a little bit and saying it is not our responsibility to use taxpayer dollars to to uh, rectify any mismanagement of funds that's going on in New York, Illinois or California. And and kudos to Mitch McConnell for doing that. So the article goes on to say it isn't always about the money either, even as the coronavirus fells socialized healthcare systems throughout Europe at rates far worse than the United States. It has inexplicably become the latest argument for Medicare for all, and it's the new excuse for universal basic income. (laughs) The second one, where do we even start with that? But for the first one, the latest argument for Medicare for all, I've said on numerous occasions on this show that these debates uh, and, and the frightening nature of the ideology of Bernie Sanders, as far as uh, universal health care is concerned, socialized medicine, um, it, it's, it's horrible enough when these guys get up in the bright lights of a debate stage and go, blah, 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 blah. This country is better than us because they provide health care for all. Blah, 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 blah. Socialized medicine is so much better than what we have going on in the United States. Nothing could be further from the truth. It's bad enough when they get up and, and pontificate about these things and they know nothing about them or they know plenty about them and they just want to lie to people that don't understand uh, medicine or healthcare delivery systems or any of these things. Um, that's bad enough. But the reality of things like this coming to fore on the heels of a coronavirus crisis is is quadruply frightening. And I've said it numerous times, uh, and it doesn't take a lot of research, guys. If, if you, there, there is a very, very clear cause and effect, a very clear reason that in many of these countries where socialized medicine is the order of the day, um, they have collapsed in record fashion and we have not. Um, the hallmarks of socialized medicine before the coronavirus ever hit the ground were backlogs, rationing, substandard care. Um, and a whole host of other things. When all of those things, which are the hallmarks and the cornerstones or the backbones of socialized medicine are in place, and then they are hit with the tsunami of the coronavirus, they will crumble like a house of cards. And for someone not to understand that, and not only to not understand that, but vote for somebody that is forwarding a very convoluted, insane notion that this indeed is the time to implement Medicare for all. That's crazy. This this could not be a worse time to implement something such as that. Um, the second part of that, a new excuse for universal basic income. I don't know where to begin with that. Um, I guess the people that want universal basic income are just pole vaulting over President Trump and many folks that are very willing to uh, do a whole host of things 
that will make it easier for you and I and people directly affected by the COVID-19 virus to uh, forestall paying certain loans back that they have now. Um, it has been easier to get loans as a small business, refund checks in, in or I don't know if they're refund checks, but checks in general of one dollar figure or another going out to the American people. So all of these things kind of transcend Republican Democrat as far as immediate and swift assistance to people that are financially affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, However, that's not quick enough, big enough, and fast enough for the left who wants universal basic income. Um, Universal basic income really doesn't have anything to do with what's going on right now. And the last I'll say about it is it, it, it is so fundamentally un-American on so many fronts that we'll just leave it at that. This is certainly not the time to implement Medicare for all. Let's all be very grateful. Bernie Sanders is presumably out of the race. And um, it is certainly not a time for universal basic income. Um, Article goes on to say, and for some people, the coronavirus is just an opportunity to score cheap political points. For example, we do not believe for even one second that Nancy Pelosi actually opposes uh, the repatriation of Americans in China. Her stated reason for attacking Trump earlier and his handling of the crisis um, so again, you know, it, it is kind of funny to see people that oppose a policy or principle on one day, but when their political opponent, um, is, is, uh, in opposition to that, then they change. Um, another bad, the article says another bad idea now getting a second win thanks to the plague is a bailout of private union-controlled pension funds. Democrats have been pushing this idea for decades. Now they are pushing it again, hoping to exploit the fact that the nation is in crisis. But if it ever were a a terrible time to bail out pensions, uh, it is now, the article says. For more than a decade, we have been making the case against bailing out union multi-employer pension funds, but the current proposal is more dangerous than anything that has previously been seen. House Democrats um, uh, want to enact a a pension plan uh, that starts by handing out $71 billion. Drink that one in for a second. $71 billion to poorly run union pensions. Then it does something even more dangerous. It gives $43 billion in taxpayer-backed loans at low interest rates. They would then invest the money in presumably depressed stock market, hoping to make back the money that they lost in high-risk investments. Um, here's the deal. Uh, if, if, if you're of the union persuasion and you believe in your union hierarchy and your union hierarchy puts out a math equation that says, here's our pension fund. You can retire at a real, real, real early age, way earlier than all the rest of us that have to work to pay the bills. And 
you can sit back and collect that pension and to the tune and, and along with several thousand of your fellow workers at the age of, I have friends, uh, work for GM, 50 years old, retired. That's ridiculous. So they're supposed to collect a pension for the next 30 years, 35 years. Now, let me stop right there. If they, in good faith, signed on the dotted line to become a union member and and be part of a, a program, if you will, where they're going to receive a, a pension when they retire after they put in 25 years. I'm, I'm speaking of a, a friend of mine, for example. That's exactly what she did. She worked from the age of 25 to 50, and she does absolutely nothing for General Motors now, and she is getting a, a very large pension. Um, that's all well and good if that's what you want to do. And I don't begrudge a rank-and-file union member at all if that's the deal they struck and that's the money they're entitled to, and that's what they want. My problem is not with the rank and file union member. It is with the people that have designed these pensions that knew that they were a losing proposition and could not mathematically be sustained over the course of, of several decades. They just can't. There's not enough workers to continue to funnel in to pay for these massive pensions that go out to to tons and tons of people. So when these pension funds are underwater to the tune of several million dollars, um, it that's something that the union and um, the Democrats that support the union and, and all of the individuals involved with that Ponzi scheme um, are supposed to figure out. Do not knock on my door. Do not tap on my shoulder uh, or, or or expect a rank and file taxpayer um, worlds away from where you live to bail out your union. And again, um, the, the things under the guise of the COVID-19 pandemic uh, are, are just mind boggling and proposals anytime a surplus of money um, can be disseminated to would-be uh, um, uh, voters for your party or that party, um, that's a real dangerous thing. And handing out billions of dollars for poorly run unions, and, and union pensions are just, just part of it. Um, the three states that I chronicled, and there's several more, they have been so mismanaged for so many years, giving out goodies to so many people. Um, that's your problem. I feel bad for you if you live in this state. I lived in the great state of New York for decades. Uh, I love New York, but it has gone down the crapper. And it is not my um, responsibility to Andrew Cuomo to uh, to help him out Um because his state was adversely affected by the coronavirus, I, I will. Um, if if he wants money from the federal government to go to go to coronavirus relief, that's fine. But these states have a way of um, getting large sums of cash and then doing all sorts of things with it that are not related to the coronavirus, and that that just um, that should not happen. And um, kudos to uh, Mitch McConnell for saying it's not going to happen. Um, lastly, uh, as it as it pertains to uh, 
you know, coronavirus money. This article says McConnell splits infrastructure from next coronavirus bill. And it says President Trump has touted massive infrastructure in the next coronavirus aid package, but Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell is planning to take up a more modest proposal, and he wants to keep it apart from the fourth round of economic aid. Impactful paragraph, um, very, very refreshing. The Kentucky Republican said that the Senate would soon take up a more modest infrastructure bill and an aide pointed to bipartisan legislation drafted by Senator John Barrasso of Wyoming, a member of the Republican leadership who has written three infrastructure measures. We have an equal interest in doing infrastructure bill, McConnell told Fox News when asked about Trump's call for big infrastructure spending in a new coronavirus aid package. But we don't have an equal interest in borrowing money for future generations to pay for it. It's unrelated to the coronavirus pandemic. I think that's um, amazing. Uh, and he, he's at odds with President Trump on this, and he should be. McConnell has continually said he is not going to use taxpayer dollars to subsidize states who are economically underwater. And, and kudos to him. There, there is someone that is a good steward of your tax dollars. Um, and he is no, as I said earlier in the show, he is no paragon of conservatism. But in this instance, he's um, at least he's talking, um, you know, like a conservative. I think that's a good thing. Um, the next article uh, kind of very troubling. Um, this one is by Michael Goodwin uh, of the New York Post. State lacked common sense in nursing home coronavirus approach. Um, and this is um, this is a real, real troubling article. Um, it's kind of got some twists and some turns to it, but um, it's really... You know, it, it is very indicative of um, of how Democrat uh, governors work and uh, people that um, are not leaders and they're just um, they're very reactionary. Uh, again, before I even start with some of the highlights of this article, um, the coronavirus is is new territory for all of us. So I had to be very careful in and very deferential to folks on the left or right or people that may have a, a differing opinion of, than myself or may look at these problems a little bit differently than I do because it, it it is all well and good to think you got something figured out and with this virus you know I, I can I can say personally um, I've had opinions about what to do and how to think on it that literally changed days later so um, I'm, I'm not necessarily throwing uh, Governor Cuomo under the bus totally. But when I peel the onion skin um, about what has happened in New York, uh, coupled with, with many of the things that Andrew Cuomo has said and done with the ventilators and, and some other things, uh, I, I really, I, I'm very troubled by some of the things that are shaking out in New York. So this article says, to make sense of the carnage 
at New York nursing homes, you don't need to sprout wings and survey the scene from 30,000 feet. Just keep your BS detector on and connect a few big dots. Um, the author says, start with the knowledge Albany had for months that the coronavirus was extra lethal for the elderly. Study after study showed death rates climbed with age, especially among those with serious pre-existing health issues. That describes the entire population in MERSE, excuse me, in most um, nursing homes. Says, then look at the now infamous March 25th directive from New York State Department of Health that orders those nursing homes and rehab centers to admit and readmit patients sick with the coronavirus. The devil comes in the first sentence of the fifth paragraph. And that sentence says, no resident shall be denied readmission or admission to um, uh, a nursing home solely based on a confirmed or suspected diagnosis of COVID-19. It reads like a legal warning against discrimination because that's exactly what it is. The order effectively makes patients contaminated with a highly contagious disease a protected class, akin to the way bias is banned along racial or gender lines. Um, the author says this concept is obscene. For the same reason that you don't strike a match near gasoline, anyone carrying the virus should be banned from nursing homes, not forced into them. So again, here's where I'm going to try to... Uh, to show some deference. Um, but it, it's very hard with a governor such as Andrew Cuomo. When Andrew Cuomo is is engaging in what all good Democrats engage in during these crises, blaming Washington, asking for funds, asking for more funds, and the funds they get aren't enough, um, Donald Trump jumped and... Um, as, as we chronicled on the show last week with um, with the general of the Army Corps of Engineers, um, they jumped into high gear. Um, they converted the Javits Center into basically a makeshift hospital, uh, a, a floating hospital, if you will, um, came in the form of a, of a huge ship um, off the uh, in, in the port uh, off New York, and and these. These uh, things were designed, maybe not necessarily in the beginning for COVID-19 patients, but more for overflow if the hospitals were inundated with COVID-19 patients. However, they were indeed um, um, uh, fitted, if you will, after the fact to indeed um, treat COVID-19 patients or at least house them um, if or segregate them, if you want to say that, um, if you will. Those two um, areas there, the, the cruise ship and the Javits Center, were absolutely underutilized. And for a March 25th edict from the state to come down and say these hospitals are being um they're running at full capacity, which is a statement that is up for debate. Um, and these COVID-19 patients have to be farmed out to somewhere. And we are making an executive decision that that somewhere is a nursing home. Um, that, to me, 
defies common sense, as the author here says. Um, if if um, the elderly is disproportionately affected and and oftentimes immunocompromised, the last thing you want to do is put a glut of um, COVID nineteen patients into that system. Now. It can be done, but as this article goes on to say, they interviewed a number of nurses and, and healthcare providers at these nursing homes and said, we had absolutely no time to do this. Um, so it, it says the concept um, is obscene. I've read that. Recall that the phrase out of an ambulance, or excuse me, out of an abundance of caution was used to justify the shutdowns of schools, churches, commerce, and impose social distancing guidelines everywhere, and it was, nursing homes needed even more extreme protections, which is why all visitors, including family, were banned lest they accidentally infect loved ones and start a daisy chain of death. Yet, when it came to those same facilities, members of Governor Cuomo's team didn't exhibit a whit of caution or common sense the results were predictably catastrophic. The second sentence in the same paragraph compounds the disaster. It says nursing homes are prohibited from requiring a hospitalized resident who is determined medically stable to be tested for COVID-19 prior to admission or readmission. In plain English, nursing homes cannot even ask whether a patient coming in from a hospital has been tested for the virus or is positive. Um, I find that very hard to believe, but I will go on. Unless the referring hospital volunteers that information, nursing homes must wait until the patient arrives and do their own tests. Even then, the state wasn't done creating chaos. Officials sprung the order on the facilities without a moment's notice. And that's what I was alluding to before. There was no planning, no thought process to give us time to identify buildings and establish units. One industry executive said it happened so quickly. In fact, several executives said that on the on the day after the order was issued, hospitals immediately called with infected patients and referring to the order said, you cannot reject them. You must take them. Uh, the disease has claimed more than 3,500 souls in nursing and rehab centers uh, across the greater New York area or nearly 25% of the total known deaths in the state. There is no way to know exactly how many died as a result of the state order, but the number is certainly not zero. The cause and effect relationship is obvious. Um, and when this policy, if you will, came to light and Governor Cuomo had to start answering questions like, why would you do this? Um, Cuomo, it says, uh, he initially claimed to actually know nothing about it. And then um, they started to put together a little talking point and then actually started turning this back on the nursing homes, threatening to revoke licenses and basically scapegoating the poor nursing homes for this phenomenon that started occurring. Um Again, I am going to be somewhat deferential. In, in, in critical times, decisions have to made, be made very quickly, and I understand that. But um, almost akin to old, uh, our friend Mayor School Bus Nagin down in New Orleans, when um, people just basically sat and waited for Hurricane Katrina to just wreak havoc on them 
when there were literally hundreds of school buses that people could have been ordered into and um, the school buses could have been driven northward, averting a lot of uh, a lot of problems. Um, this is another example of the Javits Center being pretty much um, underutilized. The cruise ship there, very underutilized. Yet these people went from the hospital to a nursing home, and that probably wasn't the smartest thing to do. And I'll, I'll cut Cuomo and his health department some slack for a very um, seemingly um, short-sighted decision. But doubling down on um, this isn't our problem and then then turning the guns on the nursing home is really something that is um, is is not what a leader would do. Uh, leaders don't do things like that. So um, anyway, we, we go on to another leader in uh, in the city of New York who, again, I'm, I'm not going to second guess his decision um, on this recent little dust up he had. But I will I will say that I am troubled by the rhetoric that he has used. Um, this article says scapegoating Jews outrage after de Blasio faults the Jewish community as as a whole. Um, excuse me, take a little water here. Um, that is troubling. Um for a crowded Brooklyn funeral. Now, the rightness or wrongness of these Orthodox um, Jews to congregate in the face of an order not to violate the six-foot rule in a um, in a city that has been ravaged by the coronavirus is is something that I'm you know uh, I'm I'm not going to be a big defender of. Um, of the Jewish community for doing, or excuse me, um, of uh, these particular Orthodox Jews for doing this. But the rhetoric that Mayor de Blasio uses is very troubling. And I, I think um, he sent out a tweet, I guess, um, or made a comment saying he faults the Jewish community, which is really you don't do something like that. So if you need a little backdrop on the story here, it was a prominent rabbi that had died. And um, the Jewish community, the uh, the Orthodox community, I should say, um, came out in droves to mourn the death of this um, particular rabbi. And um, the the uh, the firestorm started after de Blasio made the comment, my message to the Jewish community and all communities is this simple. The time for warnings has passed. I have instructed the NYPD to proceed immediately to summons or even arrest those who gather in large groups. That was a tweet uh, that de Blasio sent out. This is about stopping this disease and saving lives, period. Thousands of mourners crowding the streets of Williamsburg, Brooklyn, for the funeral of a rabbi, authorities said. Um, the photos showed many in the crowd packed shoulder to shoulder in defiance of rules imposed during the coronavirus pandemic. Again, I, I don't think it's all that smart to be doing that. But um, the the heavy-handed, dictatorial, tyrannical rhetoric that is often used by folks on the left during crisis situations 
is not helpful. It 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 makes challenging situations uh, where difficult decisions are to be made. It makes them harder when you say things such as this. Uh, De Blasio and his police commissioner. Uh, Dermot Shea defended their hardline stance on Wednesday after alienating some of de Blasio's allies in the politically active Orthodox community who accused him of signaling them out. People's lives were in danger before my eyes. I was not going to tolerate it, de Blasio said. People will die because of it. That's a bit hyperbolic, I think. Um, he could be right, but he may not be. Um, this part of the article is fascinating to me. De Blasio, who has historically been close to the Orthodox Jewish community, showed up on the scene in person to see the crowd disperse. Um, his tweet drew backlash from critics who said he was singling out the Jewish community. And um, someone from the Anti-Defamation League um, tweeted out, Hey, New York City Mayor, there are one million Jewish people in New York City. The few who don't social distance should be called out, but generalizing against the whole population is outrageous, especially when so many people are scapegoating Jews. This was Jonathan Greenblatt, the CEO of the Anti-Defamation League. Um, it erodes the very unity our city needs now more than ever. Um, de Blasio um, starting a non-apology apology, and how I know it's a non-apology apology is he used the um, the word if. When you are apologizing to anyone and you say the word if, and that's the first thing out of your mouth, you are not contrite. You are not apologizing. You just want to get this thing over with. So he says, if in my passion and in my emotion, I said something that in any way was hurtful. I'm sorry about that. It's not my intention, but I also want to be clear. I have no regrets about calling out this danger and saying we're going to deal with it very, very aggressively. Um, so, um, again, a, a tough situation for de Blasio to be in. Um, uh, what I found interesting about that, comment that he um, he is so well loved in the Orthodox Jewish community, which historically is is quite conservative. If you knew um, if you know anything about um, Orthodox Jews or Hasidic Jews, um, they're very conservative. Um, they don't necessarily vote uh, as a block Democrat like um the vast majority of Jewish people in this country do vote that way. So um, I think um, it's uh, he did represent as a uh, uh, it says Orthodox Jews have a long and stable source of votes for de Blasio, who represented a slice of, of Borough Park during his eight years in city council. So I think that's why they're kind of. Um, perhaps allied to someone who, if you look at the ideology of Mayor de Blasio and the ideological bent of the average Orthodox Jew, um, it, it really doesn't have a lot in common. So I thought that was interesting. But um, again, um, these are tough times that we live in. And for individuals to 
make tough decisions. Uh, maybe they're the wrong decisions and they have to do them on the fly in pandemic situations. I, I can I can be deferential, but the the rhetoric that is used makes this thing more complicated. It polarizes rather than brings people together. Uh, it's a lightning rod. And we all stop listening to each other when we use crazy rhetoric. So um, on to uh, a couple more stories uh, before the end of the show here. Um, we still have a presidential campaign coming up, um, or well, it's going on, but um, we will be voting for the next president of the United States in um, in a few months, which is pretty mind blowing. Um, both of these candidates have uh, have shelved any type of uh, formal uh, campaigning, which is far more to the detriment uh, to Donald Trump than it is Joe Biden. Uh, if if you are in the Biden camp and you um, you are banking on people voting for him because he has a D next to his name and you are tempering, if not out and out quelling the human gaffe machine that is Joe Biden. Um, this is a blessing in disguise, this coronavirus. Um, Joe Biden on the campaign trail is is a nail biter for anybody involved with uh, forwarding Joe Biden or defeating Donald Trump. And it just is. So shelving him, if you will, until the summer, and that's going to help him because people don't pay attention in the summer, is uh, you are buying more time for Joe Biden not to um, be Joe Biden. Um, it is It is to his advantage to lay low. Conversely, on the other hand, a tremendous liability for Donald Trump. Donald Trump feeds on, lives off, and is benefited greatly by going from city to city to city in a seemingly infatigable way um, at the age of whatever he is in his mid-70s. Um, and just to to crowds of of just throngs of of uh, devotees and oftentimes more people outside the venue that are inside the venue, and it, whether the liberal media wants to cover it or not, they almost have to. Um, that is his wheelhouse. That is um, that is where he slings a lot of red meat, and um, so. Uh, this article that I'm not going to be able to get into a little bit but for the um, time constraints here, it says Trump to travel to Arizona next week. And he says he hopes rallies will resume soon. Uh, I bet he does because rallies for him are uh, the lifeblood of his campaign and his, um, his chances in uh, November, particularly in, in the very, very unpredictable economic times that we all find ourselves in. And, um, as I said, Joe Biden laying low is is a win-win-win for anybody that wants to see him become president of the United States. So I guess we will leave it at that. Um, in the midst of this coronavirus, um, we are slowly but surely marching to, a, um, to an election in November, and it should be very interesting to see how this all unfurls. This is Kurt Flewelling reshaping America. Until next week.